maybe I should have chosen a happier book series to read in 2020. I'm in my 20s, or maybe my 30s. Can't remember simple things. I left out my groceries, but as I'm sinking, I find myself thinking. Not of death or the world's great design, it's of all the books I read when I was nine. Hello friends and readers, uh, today we have finished The Bad Beginning, so we will be talking about that for the entirety. I thought that I would be able to finish two books and talk about them both in one episode, but um, I, I think it's worthy that this first book at least deserves an episode all by itself since there's a lot to unpack and a lot introduced to us all at once in such a short novel. But after that, after we get used to our characters and start to um, talk about more of the story, I guess, than, than these other aspects that I would like to talk about or bring up for this first book, um, then I'll start grouping them together. So the next episode, I will group the second, ep- uh, the second book series, second book in the series, I apologize, second book in the series with the third one. So we'll be talking about The Reptile Room and then The Wide Window, I believe is the third book. But for this first one, we're just going to stick to The Bad Beginning And I know I'll get sidetracked. I know we have a lot of these books to get through. So I'm going to try not to get too carried away with talking about, um, I don't know, talking about character arcs, I guess. I'm not going to talk about the character arcs and what I think is going to happen or anything like that because I have read the series. There's a lot that I forgot, um, but I am happy that I'm rereading it as an adult because there's a a lot of messages here that Lemony Snicket does. And coming from someone who has studied creative writing, I guess, and has studied a lot of different novels in school, um, it's it's easier for me to assume, and I guess, well, I guess, you know, anyone can take this position if you want, but in my positioning, I will be assuming that everything that Lemony Snicket does, on, does or says in the book is on purpose, um, with intent to be researched by the reader. It's going to be a lot of work for us, Personally, if we dive into footnotes like that, but Lemony Snicket does give a lot, a lot of references throughout this entire thing. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later. But I am going to assume, you know, that he is a very purposeful writer. I think that's pretty obvious in the way that he's written his books so far. So when he makes references to things or when he casually announces like, oh, this reminds me of this book or whatever, when he interrupts the story to make some weird reference or daydream or babble on about something that he's thinking about as an author, um, I'm going to assume that's intentional and meant to have relevance to the story. There's not too much of that in this first book. Mostly it's him apologizing for how depressing the books are about to be and how sad the story is about to become. But I know it is something that he has done in the later books where he goes off on rants or has a full page of saying nothing in particular. You know, he's very creative with stuff like that. So the main questions that I just want to be talking about for at least this first episode is I'll be talking about who are the characters that we are introduced. Um, I do want to talk about the author, who is Lemony Snicket, um, both, I guess, to us as readers, but in general, I'll give a little bit of a biography, I guess, about who this author is and his pen name. And then um, I would like to talk about what themes do I think are being discussed in this first book, uh, whether they carry on to other books beyond that, 
we'll just have to wait and see. But um, I do want to talk about what themes I think might be in play uh, at the beginning of the series. And then the last thing that I would like to kind of ponder about, I guess, with a group of people would be why the hell did I read these books as a child? Because I'm not sure what would have been super interesting to me about seeing so many horrible things happen to characters that I really, really like. These kids are really likable, so I don't understand what came over me as a child that continuously would read books like that, I guess. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is um, just the biography of the book. So this was first published in 1999 for reference, and the artwork is done by an artist named Brett Hellquist or Hellquist. And then our author here is Mr. Lemony Snicket, which is a pen name for the actual author known as Daniel Handler. So Lemony Snicket or this, um, this pen name or this persona that Daniel Handler has created for himself um, is really interesting. When I tried to look up why he came up with that nickname, it was more of just like it was an inside joke or like a reference to some other book that he was really interested in. So he just thought it would be funny to continue the pen name. But this author, this persona in itself is also a really diverse character, I guess, in the story. I guess that's the part that always confused me is that I wasn't really familiar, I guess, as a child, the separation of like author and novel. I don't know how exactly to describe this, but it is very confusing. I remember being very confused on who the author was to me when I was reading this series, especially since I was at least smart enough to know that no way was this a true story. This was a fictional book series. Um, but I do remember being super perplexed reading this and being like upset almost that at the back of the book, not much information was given about Lemony Snicket at all. Um, it's more of like he's secret or he's hiding from the government or something like that. And even then, I think I remember as a child thinking like, if this guy's like undercover, why hasn't anyone caught him yet? Like, I'm happy he's not caught, but Like, what's going on? What is he running from? What am I reading? You know, like, I remember feeling kind of like a baddie, feeling like I'm reading a story that was written by like some delinquent man that was on the run and had to hide his identity and had weird, weird pictures at the back of each book. But I mean, it's just, he's inserted himself as an actual character. So it's, it's confusing as a child. I didn't know what to look up when I was a child. And I think when I did use the internet, when I was first reading these books as a little kid, not much was coming up for Lemony Snicket, or at least maybe I just was not not smart enough to do some deep digging on the web. But as far as I knew, I could not figure out a lot of information about Lemony Snicket and it really pissed me off. And looking back at it now, I don't think I gave a crap about any other author that I've ever read, any other book series that I ever read. I wasn't like, oh, I need to know everything there need there is to know about C.S. Lewis, or I need to know everything there is to know about J.K. Rowling, or this or that. I never once gave two fucks. It wasn't until I read the back of the book or glance at it that someone says, oh, you can't have this information, that I got super pissed as a kid. But I do think, actually, that this could pop up as a theme. I'm still, I'm still pondering this, and I know more information about Lemony Snicket's character 
um, will be revealed to us the further along we get into the series. But he's inserted himself as a real person in this narrative. And I think if you've read this series before, there are several moments where he has direct contact, I think, with the kids. I'm not too 100% sure, and I don't remember a lot, honestly. But I do remember that he has some involvement in this narrative where, like, he knows the information, he's researching, he talks about how he spends time researching the Baudelaire children and, like, writing down notes, and he's always on the run. So it seems like he's directly involved in this narrative or at least knows something that he is not telling us but is continuing to tell the story about the children. It's, it's pretty confusing. Um, but I mean, it's, it's only confusing because we demand answers. Like me, I guess, as an, as an adult, I demand answers for everything. So it's, it's not confusing, I guess, as a child, if you're okay with not knowing things. But <sighs> I don't know. He just He doesn't reveal a lot. I remember that being like a really frustrating thing for me and me feeling like an FBI agent if I found like something on the internet that he maybe said or did or whatever. But I remember being super frustrated because I was confused on if he was a real person or not. And if he was a real person, then was this a real story? And if it was a real story, then why hasn't anyone been arrested? <laughs> why hasn't anyone been arrested? So, okay, so that's like, I guess we can just use that quote continuously throughout the entire series. Why? Why isn't anyone in jail, honestly? But okay, I guess this dives into the theme section. But let's briefly talk about um, the characters, the prominent characters that we're introduced to at the start of the book. And then I'll dive into what kind of theme it is about why isn't anyone in jail? Why is no one in jail? Okay. So our main characters, just for a quick reference sheet, we have Violet, who is the oldest sister. We have Klaus, who is the middle child and the brother. And then we have Sunny, who is an infant and the youngest daughter. So there's three of them. Uh, Violet is 14. Uh, she is described as an inventor. When she pulls her hair back, that's when you know it's time for her to be in bad bitch mode and she's ready to start building some shit to save the day. And Lemony Snicket does this thing where he gives like a weird fact after he's introduced um, each child, I guess. So for Violet, her first fact that she gets, or at least one of the facts that she gets, is that like most children, she is right-handed. And then she also has a moment where she considers this. This is a little bit later after her description, but I think it's important to note that Violet. Okay, let's let me just continue with the characters and then we'll get into it. I'm, I'm worried I'm never going to talk about anything else. So Klaus is 12 years old. We'll move on to him. Klaus is 12 years old. He's super duper smart, loves to read, will read just about anything um, he cares a lot about small differences and small details. He's very meticulous about this kind of stuff. And he really requires an explanation for pretty much anything the entire time. Um, his little fun fact that he got from Lemony Snicket is that he is so smart that he actually knows who killed Julius Caesar. And then Sunny um, is an infant and she just has very sharp teeth, which come as come in handy as weapons, I assume, later. But she's she's pretty much helpless, honestly, um, at least in this first book, because she is so little. They, I don't think they give her an exact age, but she is an infant and needs to be carried around. She can crawl, she can't walk or anything, but 
we just know that she's very, very little in this first in this first book. So then we have Poe, who is the banker, and he is in charge of the Baudelaire children's family fortune. Um, and he has direct orders from the will of the parents about how to handle the children. So he uh, kind of acts as like a sort of a guardian. He's not a guardian in any way, shape, or form, but he does have a lot of responsibility over the Baudelaire's in terms of where they get placed from here on out now that their parents are gone because he has the will and only he has the will right now as far as I know. So he's reading directly from it. He says, you know, legally I can't do certain things because I have to follow orders that your parents have given me. I wish I could do things a different way, but I cannot for legal reasons. Um, I have to follow your parents' orders. So that is Poe. He will be reoccurring also throughout the rest of the series sadly and unfortunately and unhelpfully i if i remember correctly he's not going to be very useful but he is there uh, i think to work as something to represent about our own world right now um and then we have count olaf who is a count uh he describes himself as an actor he is horribly described as someone with a unibrow someone who is a skinny king uh he has a tuxedo on that's really ratty and tatty and and just horrible. His house is horrible. It's just, he has a lot of bad stuff going on about him. Uh, a lot of materialistic stuff, if I do say so myself, but we'll talk more about how the Baudelaire's uh, started off, I guess. Um, and then when Poe is describing this Count Olaf to the children, who is the first person to receive the Baudelaire children after their parents have died to gain, um, you know, legal guardianship over them, he is described as either a third cousin four times removed or a fourth cousin three times removed. That is directly quoted from Poe, who I guess did not really super care to figure out the details. I get he's, I get he's a busy man, but it's very odd that the Baudelaire children go to him. And we get told that at the very beginning because Count Olaf is not someone who the children have ever heard about ever from their parents who seem to be really sociable and have a lot of friends over all the time. Count Olaf has never been over to their house, even though he lives relatively close to the boat, to the Baudelaire's and where their house had burned down. So, okay. So those are the main characters we, we have to talk about. And then obviously Lemony Snicket, I will all include him as a character as well. So, okay, let me just, Explain, explain Lemony Snicket real quick. He, once again, known as Daniel Handler. He is the main character in a separate book series. I actually did not know this real quick, but I'll insert this briefly. There is a prequel series to the series of unfortunate events. I have not read this at all, and I have not heard of this at all, but Lemony Snicket is the main character in this prequel uh, four book series. And the title of this is called All the Wrong Questions. I will look up if that is directly tied to the universe of a series of unfortunate events and the Baudelaire story. But I did not know that he presents himself as a main character in a separate in a separate book. But this character, Lemony Snicket, is also found in a book called Cheshire Crossing by Andy Weir or Andy Weir. It's W-E-I-R. Uh, this is the author who wrote The Martian, if you've ever seen that. It got adapted into a film starring Ryan Reynolds, but apparently Lemony Snicket is a character in one of his books. And there's a few other books that 
Lemony Snicket has written for children under the pen name of Lemony Snicket. But I don't, as far as I could tell and as far as I was reading or looking up, I don't think it has anything to do with the book series directly. They're just other hobbies or things that Lemony Snicket likes to write about. Although Lemony Snicket's character, persona, whatever it is that he would like to call it, although it is a confusing character to the narrative, I do think it's important to note that he is an author and a character and a character and a narrator that we can trust as kids. Um, and I think this kind of ties into my next question, which would be why would I read a book series that is so depressing and so horrible happening to good people like I don't understand why this is a book series that has continued on for 12 more books in addition to this one um but I do think Lemony Snicket is probably about at least 60% of the appeal of this entire series strictly because he keeps his promises he keeps his word about things he cares to take time to acknowledge the reader's feelings and the feelings of the children and also does a very good job of not being very condescending for big words that he uses throughout the book, which is often. He uses a lot of big books considering the age group that this is targeted towards, but he does a good job of, I guess you could say, taking care of us, um, which I think is really, really important. Later, I remember in one of our classes during my last year at college, we were talking about why it is so important that we trust our author and we trust our narrator and what that can do to a series if the narrator or author does something that is inconsistent or at least pretty malicious or, um, I don't know, confusing or like a betrayal of some sort. It's it's this ultimate betrayal for the narrator specifically or the author or the, whoever it is that is telling the story to be a liar or to be mistrustful. And I think this ties into how a lot of what childhood feels like. And I think that's what makes the book series so relatable to so many kids um, and what makes it sell as a kid series in general. Um, I don't think that their story is entirely relatable to me at all. But if you reread this story as an adult, it's very, very easy for you to catch on to what what parts I guess exactly are more targeted towards kids and more uh, sympathetic or empathetic towards their experiences. Um, There's a lot of borderline instances in this book in particular, and I'm sure in all the other books, where these kids go through something that I'm sure so many other kids have gone through separately or altogether, God forbid, but or, or altogether. Um, this includes, you know, there's a, there's a reference of, um, you know, Count Olaf hits Klaus at one point. Um, he scares the other two kids when he is holding Sonny up over his head at one point and they're worried for Sonny's safety. Uh, he really threatens Sonny's life consistently and their life, uh, which can obviously be a, oh, like, I don't know if I have to say it exactly, but a pretty close metaphor for physical and um, domestic abuse, physical, emotional, and like abuse and neglect in a home and how children are able to cope with that or not cope with that. Um, there's also another case, if you guys remember in this in this book series, this is the book series where Count Olaf tries to get away with marrying Violet, 
who is, again, 14, and without having to say it, I'm pretty sure we all understand that Count Olaf is obviously not 14. Um, but he, he almost gets away with it in this book. And I think this this weird this weird play that Count Olaf puts on to try and get away with, you know, marrying Violet, or at least even the, the whole idea and plan of marrying Violet, um, I think would be as close as you can get to talking to kids about sexual assault. This is this is a big claim, I know, for me to make, but I think this is as close as Lemony Sticket could get to, you know, referencing or talking about sexual assault to children without being super direct. I know that kids aren't normally made aware of that as something that could be a problem or something that is scary, but the way that Violet is talked about in this book, um, even though it's it's real quick, it doesn't have to be any longer for us to feel uncomfortable for a grown man to make any comment at all about a 14-year-old girl. Nonetheless, his, his niece, or wh- however these people are related, however Count Olaf is related to them, if he is related at all, um, not much has to be said to make us uncomfortable because comments from older men should not be directed towards women underage, period. So I think Lemony Snicket is very clever with trying to bring up topics by like pushing the bar, but not so much to make us horribly uncomfortable. As a child, I think if you've ever experienced sexual assault, you would you would catch on to this reference and you would immediately feel connected to Violet. I don't think Lemony Snicket is doing this to, you know... I don't think he's doing I don't think he's doing this in a manipulative way. I don't think he's making these characters suffer so that it for his own personal gain of making kids feel like, oh, you know, like they're like me. Um I but I I do think in that sense he is trying to make characters that are really relatable to children specifically who don't really have adult figures in their life that they feel like they can trust or maybe they feel ridiculous for feeling certain things or maybe they feel like they're being dramatic or they're being too much or they're too scared to ask for help or they're you know any kind of when children are made to feel like children basically um not a lot of people or at least growing up i guess um i don't know how to describe this at least in america as far as i know and as far as my experience growing up uh children aren't really like their feelings are not really acknowledged like adults. And I think that that has a huge impact on child growth um, in general, As and I'm sure many of us can attest to that too, growing up and not being able to express feelings or feeling like maybe like, oh, like that's gonna, you know, maybe ruin the vibe if I bring this up or maybe, you know, this is gonna throw things, this is just gonna make things worse if I bring this up or I'm gonna bring it up and no one's going to help me would be... probably one of the biggest themes, I think, in this entire story. Um, so I guess I guess to kind of summarize that, Lemony Snicket is doing a good job of being very, very honest to his readers. He's being very aware that his readers are children. Um, and he's talking to them like they are, they are real people and not like they're kids who need to have sugar-coated things. He tells us at the beginning that this is a horrible story. He keeps his word, even though it's a horrible promise to keep. Um, he keeps his word. And I think that that mattered more to me as a child, not to say I was lied to constantly, but as a child, you really do value when people take their word. You take things very, very seriously when people tell you one thing 
and don't follow through. It's a, it's probably one of the earliest and if not only forms of betrayal that you learn um, as a child, no matter what kind of environment you grow in, whether it's, you know, the perfect environment or maybe you have a lot of resentment towards your childhood. But despite all of that, it, it is really important to have reliable people in your life as a child because you are someone who is entirely dependent on adults. So I think, I think one of the main overarching themes of this entire series would have to be the, I don't know if it's a theme entirely, but it's, it's more of the power and the journey of a child, children in general, growing up, um, learning when to trust adults and when not to trust adults. This is a very, very serious topic. I thought I thought I would get super passionate about, you know, the characters and I'd want to gossip about the characters, but this is this is very, very important. And I admire Lemony Snicket's patience and attention to detail and the way that he so simply and also in very complicated ways explains things to the readers slash children. Um, among these things is he uses, you know, the vocabulary words we've talked about. He explains things out in that way in a very patient and calming manner. Um, when, whenever the kids have overwhelming feelings of pain or despair, um, he doesn't say that things will get better or that, you know, he doesn't just say like, oh, they were sad and then moves on about it. Um, that I know like a lot of childhood books would kind of reference or like, oh, pick up your head or cheer up or maybe just even shove it under the rug kind of technique where it's like, you know, something horrible happens and then the story just continues to move on and nobody really talks about the uncomfortableness of bad feelings that are discussed. And I guess the earliest form of this is that I circled at least is on page seven for me on my version. And the example I put is when Mr. Poe first comes up to the children at the beach and they're all having a nice day. So Violet starts out and she says, oh, okay, it's Mr. Poe. And he says, oh, um, you know, he like waves to them, meets up with them. Violet says, oh, it's a really nice day, Mr. Poe. And then Mr. Poe says, yes, it is a nice day. <laughs> let me just, let me, I'll just read the line out to you. Yes, it is a good day, Mr. Poe said absently, staring out at the empty beach. I'm afraid I have some very bad news for you children. So it's um, like not a good day. <laughs> it's not a good day at all. Um, but I'd, I'd say that's like the first example of the kind of a complicated adult dynamic that has an effect on these kids, you know? Even though this isn't really a super strong statement, I do think it kind of addresses the casualness that adults have a lot of times about uncomfortable topics. Um, you know, I don't it's it's hard for adults to talk about this stuff and i i understand it 100% and lemmy snicket is trying really really hard to create a space that is comfortable with talking about the feelings of others and the feeling of despair and not making kids feel like it's something that they should get over pretty quickly or even that the emotion is anything small whatsoever one of the examples of this kind of uh mindset i guess or at least you know, of Lemony Snicket trying to address things that are very complicated or at least uncomfortable for most people to write about. Um, I'm going to reference page 34 
the top paragraph where Klaus is talking about how much he misses their friends and how much they wish that they had people who would come and visit them because they feel very alone and by themselves. And at this point, they're in Count Olaf's house, I believe. But Klaus starts off and he says, maybe somebody wants to visit us, Klaus said, without much hope. In the time since the Baudelaire parents' death, most of the Baudelaire orphans' friends had fallen by the wayside, an expression here which means they stopped calling, writing, and stopping by to see if any of the Baudelaire's making them very, very lonely. You and I, of course, would never do this to any of our grieving acquaintances, but it is a sad truth in life that when someone has lost a loved one, friends sometimes avoid the person just when the presence of friends is most needed. I thought that paragraph was beautifully written and extremely well done, especially since A, it explains um, a figure of speech that he brings up or references, so he has the patience to re-explain himself to people. And then also, with him, again, being a trustworthy adult and telling us how it really is. He's not sugarcoating anything, he's just letting people know that often it is the case that when you most need friends, when you've lost someone or when you're grieving something, that is when they pull away the most. I know that's not the case, obviously, for most people. And he says that too. He says, you and I would never do that to someone because we know it is hard for them and we care about them. But it is the case for most people that their friends abandon them when they are grieving or need them the most. And in Lemony Snicket's direct comment towards the reader, calling us a we with him we a we with him him saying you know you and i would never do this we would never do this to our friends right now that i think is a very clear example of what he will be trying to do consistently which is to group them together to say look at us we're empathetic beings we know this is hard and you and i are strong and brave because we do this anyways or we're a little bit better because when things get hard we don't run away from things Um, I mean, this might, this might just go deeper and deeper as soon as the series like goes on. But as far as we know, this is, this is something that he does really expertly to make us feel like our author is a companion and someone that we can trust, someone that we might even identify ourselves with being similar to because so far we've already addressed the thing that we have in common with him which is that we care what happens to the three main characters of violet klaus and sunny the second example that i thought was a good topic to bring up of where lemony snicket is trying to create this empathetic space for children to express themselves um is on page 32 in my book and klaus is fed up with this they've they've kept their composure living in Count Olaf's house and tried to look on the bright side of things but at this point Klaus is just so not not having it at all he's he's lost his composure so Violet it starts off with Violet and she says they meaning her parents would never let us stay in this dreadful place so she's talking about her parents and thinking about the life that they built for her and the life that they had before, which was in this massive mansion. They were really, really wealthy, had great books, had a good education, had all the resources they need to explore their hobbies, you know. So, And now they're stuck in this ratty-tatty house that's dirty that they have to clean all the time, even though it doesn't look like it's been cleaned in years and years. And 
they have to do all these chores and they get yelled at and they get hurt and sometimes they get hit but they're talking about this one instance where they finally snap and violet says this is ridiculous like they would never let us stay in this dreadful place and then klaus says if they were here we would not be with count olaf in the first place i hate it here violet I hate this house, I hate our room, I hate having to do all these chores, and I hate Count Olaf. I hate it too, Violet said, and Klaus looked at his older sister with relief. Sometimes, just saying that you hate something, and having someone agree with you, can make you feel better about a terrible situation. I hate everything about our lives right now, Klaus, she said, but we have to keep our chin up. This was an expression the children's father had used, and it meant try to stay cheerful. So from then on, they go forward to just pick it up and make the betterment of it. But I thought that was a good paragraph to bring up with the brief sentence in between where Lemony Snicket just basically gives us an explanation of what it means to be empathetic to people or to be a good listener when people are complaining. And it is to agree with them or at least to show that you guys are both sharing the same feelings about something and how that can make people feel better about things. I think that is the ties into the theme, I guess, that we have been talking about, about how Lemmy Snicket tries to make these characters something that can be relatable in this sense where, you know, we have an author who says, yeah, it sucks. Today sucks. So as a kid, you f- might feel validated too when you start to think today is a bad day. And instead of trying to always say like, you know, well, it's a bad day and it's always going to be a bad day. Or maybe, you know, like, like it's your fault maybe that it's a bad day or like it, it is what you make it so maybe you just need to try harder and then it won't be a bad day. Like sometimes we just need an adult person to say, yeah, it is a bad day. It sucks today. Today sucked. And just that simple agreement with you can just make you feel 110% better. I took a break real quick, but I remember what I was mad about. So... I want to talk real quick about how much Poe pisses me off before we wrap things up. I can't stand Poe. He's literally useless. Ugh, I'm sorry. That's so that's so mean. But I don't think he has much of a background info in general to us because I don't think he's an important character. Um, but I do think he's an important item as much as it pains me to call that to people. But a lot of, a lot of stories have characters in there that are meant to represent something more so than... Um, or to symbolize something more so than actually being beneficial to the story. Um, So that's where, you know, the conversation of like static versus dynamic characters come in and people get mad when people are, or when characters are static. Um, As far as I remember, I remember being pissed off at Poe continuously the entire time, throughout the entire series when I was a kid. And it still definitely stands today for this first book. He just pisses me off. All the adults in this series honestly pisses me off, including the Baudelaire parents, honestly. That pisses me off too. There's just too much of people lying around children and trying to sugarcoat things. And it's really, really frustrating, especially when their lives are at risk or like such horrible treatment is happening. (sighs) So real quick, I'll just talk about what I think Poe might symbolize. Um, And I think that Poe ultimately symbolizes the corrupt uh, law system, I guess. It pains me to say that, but I mean, Count Olaf finds too many times. I mean, granted, I don't know what time period this is. Maybe I should research a bit more. 
figure out what time period this is, whatever. But I know that this still stands anyways, is that there's weird laws or there's weird exceptions to laws. And Count Olaf is really good at finding the loopholes of these and duping the law system. Um, I mean, truthfully, I don't even know if Count Olaf is even the relative of these kids. I don't know if that ever gets actually proven, but third cousin, fourth removed, or fourth cousin, third, three times removed, whatever it is that he is, I feel like Count Olaf could get away pretty easily with saying that about himself, saying that he's related to the Baudelaire's when he's absolutely not. And, you know, the fact that <laughs> Poe even says, you know, like, oh, I'm not too sure how he's related to you, how he's related to you guys, one or the other or whatever. It proves that, you know, there's not much work that goes into Poe, I guess. He's a, you know, he's a banker. Why is he even in charge of all this stuff? I don't understand. Where are the social services? <laughs> it really pisses me off. But I know too that the entire time these kids are trying to, you know, beg for Mr. Poe to take them back. They go and visit him and they try to say, you know, oh, we hope our meeting will be in confident, in confidence or whatever, and that you won't um, tell people that we came to come see you, but we're scared for our lives and we don't want to live there at the house anymore. We don't want to live with Count Olaf anymore. And Poe responds very vaguely, very like nonchalantly, and it's mostly because he's not really paying attention to anything that these kids are saying. When they come to his bank and start to ask for help, he's kind of like, oh, you know, you'll be fine. What? And he's like taking a phone call, whatever. I know he's a busy man, but he should not even be in charge of this in general. He should not be in charge. And I think he's sort of representative of how many like, uh, I'm trying to put this into like a concise or condensed form, but I did read this article or at least one of these, um, one of the popular opinions, at least on via Google about what entirely this whole series is meant to represent. Uh, one of the ideas that they had, um, that someone had was an ethics of, what is it? A practice of ethics and morals, I guess is what they, is the way that they placed it. So what this means is that the boat of their children, although they are children, they have to do a bunch of problem solving, figuring out, oh, what's the right thing to do? When's the right thing to do it? Do we look after each other? Yes, we're always going to look after each other. Um, is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do this? Blah, blah, blah. But what comes with this is their open or at least sad realization that the law does not really protect them at all. Um, or at least it's meant to, it has good intentions, but there's too many loopholes and it's, it's a sham for them. Honestly, there's every single book. I feel like there's a moment where they're like, hello, can an adult help us? Hello, where do we go to, to get help? They're trying endlessly to try and get help. And after a while, they kind of come to this realization where they can't depend on adults and they can't depend on law enforcement and they can't depend on people taking care of them when it is their job to take care of them because they keep failing at it or they keep ignoring them or they're they're not listening to the kids who are asking for their complaints or where do we get to in a certain point in the foster care system if we want to go there um where do we get to to this point where the kids are asking for help and you go to the foster parent or the adult to be like is this true are you abusing these children is that true sir yeah of course the fuck the, of course they're gonna say no of course they're gonna say no any adult is always gonna deny that or say oh they're just being kids or whatever so kids continuously are told that they have to be independent basically they have to figure it out on their own that they can't depend on people because no one's gonna believe them that adults need factual evidence for things 
And if they like bring evidence before then, maybe then they'll be believed and get their situation turned around. But even then, there are things that Poe can't do for these kids that are in their best interest, specifically because there are certain laws going around it, or there are certain requests, or there are certain things, whatever. So it's frustrating to me that even when adults have the ability to help these kids, they can't for legal reasons. So I think when we're bringing up like a, a practice of ethics and morals, it's this fine line between you know, when can we depend on the law enforcement to do good for us? And when do we have to take matters into our own hands? Question mark seems to be the kind of situation and mindset that these kids are starting to have. Um, there's even a point, I guess, where they go across the street or they're like thinking about asking their neighbor for help and saying, oh my gosh, you know, like we need to tell her about this horrible plan that Count Olaf has to marry Violet. Like he's going to get away with it because legally it makes sense and like she's gonna help with this and not know. So they run over to their house and then they have this this moment in between these kids, this 14 year old, 12 year old kid, where they talk about, she's not gonna believe us at all. So we need to figure out something else, you know? It's not they go to her and they ask her for help and then, and then she says no. By this first book, they already have this mindset where they're like, we can't tell this person, even if she is good, because she's not going to believe us. She's an adult. She needs factual evidence. She's excited about Count Olaf. She sees the best interest in people. Or maybe she just avoids um, hard problems. Sorry to say that about Justice Strauss, but a lot of this is about... Um, adults assuming the easier route because they don't want to take the harder route, if that makes sense. So Poe pisses me off. I don't think he's meant to be a full and dynamic character. I meant, I think he's meant to just represent an overall collective of adults who have good intentions and are meant to be helpful, but are not, are not because of certain obstacles that are in the way, or maybe there are certain mindsets that kids might be telling lies the entire time to get out of bad situations which you know I don't think I've never met a kid who is that clever to try and you know say that they're they've been hurt or injured or whatever or to complain or be concerned about their safety for malicious intent and I it frustrates me because I feel like Poe should know this. Poe's met these kids he's even housed them in his own house for a few nights when the parents passed away um, and it's just, you know, it's not in their character anyways for them to be malicious or to lie or to complain. And I don't know if maybe Poe is starting to think this because he knows that they're very, very wealthy and just isn't used, like they just aren't used to living in a house that's a little bit of a lower income. So maybe he has some weird, like, pre-existing assumptions, I guess, or just weird assumptions about this family in general about their wealth and like doesn't take their complaints very seriously but Klaus brings up that he was hit he brings up how much of a threat Count Olaf is to Sunny whatever and it's literally it's so <laughs> it's insane how the the point the point in the story which Poe believes them is at the play, at the play that Count Olaf is is putting on. So just, just for context real quick, if you didn't read the book recently and you're just going based off of memory, Count Olaf puts on this play. This is Count Olaf's plan. Count Olaf puts on this play and it's called like The Marvelous Marriage or something like that. It's about this, this story where he's the main character and it's about a story about a marriage. We don't really know anything else about the story, but it's three acts. So he wants to put on this play in his like backyard or 
No, it's not his backyard. I actually don't know where it's at. It, the, there's a picture in the book that shows that it's at an actual theater. Um, but, I mean, I don't remember it being in, at an actual theater. So, anyway, so he wants to put on this play about a marriage. He wants, he asks Violet to be in the play, not till the last minute when the marriage scene is happening. And she will play the role of his wife and they will be married. And he's asked Justice, the Justice Strauss, um, the, she's an actual, actual real life justice. That's not her first name. She is a justice. Um, so she, she is asked to be in the play also playing herself, basically playing a justice or someone who is getting to read the vows out loud to them and confirming the marriage or whatever. And then he wants Violet to sign the paper to say, you know, to make it look realistic as possible that they're like actually getting married in this play, whatever. But it's an actual legal document that he gets from City Hall. Um, since they do have a justice uh, present, they do have someone who is present who can confirm this marriage and like actually solidify it. It legally counts, even though she is 14 years old and he is not 14 years old. And the way he gets this to work is that you can marry someone who is under who's under age period apparently wherever this place is that they live you can marry someone who is under age if they have permission from their legal guardian and count olaf is technically the legal guardian of violet so he's trying to put on this whole fake play thing and trying to get away with this weird concept where he gets to marry his child i guess he's the legal guardian and he would become the legal husband of violet at the same time God, it's it's so it's so weird and it's so messed up and so uncomfortable. Like I don't even know where to start about how uncomfortable it is. We all obviously know how uncomfortable this is for this old man to do this weird stuff. So anyways, they're trying to figure out this whole information whatever. And the point in which Poe finally believes them when they're trying to do all this stuff. Hey, we got this. We got this. Listen to this, Mr. Poe. Mr. Poe, you have to help us. Help us. Oh my gosh, this is... We're so scared that he's going to try and marry her for real. Blah, blah, blah. All of this situation, Poe is very like, What are you talking about? I'm having a great time. What are you... This is a great play. Oh, I'm so excited with my wife to watch this beautiful play. And then when everything gets discovered, because Violet is clever as F, clever as heck, she <laughs> signs the paper with her left hand. She finds this loophole or whatever, which ties back to the beginning of Lemony Snicket announcing, oh, just so you guys know, if you want to pay attention really deeply, Violet is right-handed. So, and then it's emphasized, obviously, during the play that she signs with her left hand. And legally, it does not count because it's not technically her own hand, in quotes. So it's... It's really, honestly, in, in terms of the law, this is a really stupid thing, I think, because I think that's ridiculous. I don't understand how Violet got away with that, with signing with her left hand and that being like a normal thing that can make a marriage not be legally binding. Um, but it makes sense. And this is ultimately trying, I guess, in a weird way. Again, I just want to express this. These are not personal opinions, but this, these are things that I think the author or the book is trying to achieve. But right away with this first book, we kind of know that the law is kind of, is the law is just stupid. I don't know how other ways to put it. It's just, it is just so, so stupid. And there's too many loopholes. And you can see that because it is ridiculous and stupid that Count Olaf could get away with this technically. 
um, if it did work out and no one would be able to say anything about it. No one would be able to take him to court, maybe um, even ju- even the justice when the whole plan is being, um, you know, brought about or whatever. I, oh my God, I just realized I keep calling her a justice. She's a judge. Oh my God. I swear I have an English degree. Okay. I've made a lot of mistakes already. I've already listened to the first half of this podcast and I already know I have a lot of things to mis- to correct or whatever is what happens when I ramble on and I don't correct myself. But anyways, a lot of stupid is the basic thing I just want to bring up. But even even her, uh, Justice Strauss, when she talks about it and Count Olaf is like, ah, I've, I've done it. I have the fortune. I My evil plan worked, blah, blah, blah. Then she's like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, your evil plan worked. Oh my God. I, you're right. You're right. And I just... I. It's just so stupid. I'm like, nothing can be done. Nothing. But this is this is this is how the law works. It, it it has good intentions, but there's these weird loopholes and these weird fine prints that people can technically get away with if they tried really, really hard, you know? And in that sense, in a term of ethics and morals and practice or whatever, it's it's made to believe these kids that good people don't go to jail. And Bad people don't go to jail either, you know? And good people actually... <sighs> Whatever. Good people have good intentions also, but they're generally unhelpful if the law comes into play. So, whatever. The, the ridiculous thing that I just wanted to tie up is that Poe does not really understand or see this whole weird dynamic or weird plan or he's like that's ridiculous like I, I partially think I would probably agree with Poe in this beginning sense when they're like oh like he's trying to marry us for real I'd be like no no way that's like a real thing that could actually happen it's a play and like there has to be way more laws probably to protect this 14 year old girl from marrying this however old man I don't know how old he is I would assume that with Poe I'd be like you guys okay like, come on, there's there's laws to protect you guys. There's like a bunch of adults here. He's not going to try and do anything, whatever. But he can, and he almost got away with it. He got real fucking close to getting away with it because he's smart and he knows how to dupe the system and he's a bad person who technically was following the law. So it's it's this really, really complicated dynamic that good people and bad people don't go to jail also, you know, and it's, I'm, and I know it's trying to mess up this weird, this, this weird, not mess up, I guess, but try and provide some insight that maybe like good people have to do things that go against the law or try and like sneak around the law in order to protect themselves from bad people who sneak around the law to get stuff done. I don't know. I don't know how else to explain this, but it's just basically if the law were a character in in Lemony Snicket's book series right now, uh, it would just be like a rock. Like it's just not helpful. It's just really, really dumb. Maybe you can use it as a weapon to throw at enemies, um, but they can. It's just a rock. They can pick it up and throw it right back to you, and it's not, ultimately not going to do much. Especially because Count Olaf in the end gets away. Anyways, no, no one just. They're like, where'd he go? He turns off the lights, he gets out, whatever. It's really comical. But, you know, and this is after um, Sunny comes down from a tower. I didn't even, it's so ridiculous. I think, you know, okay, just real quick, real quick. You know what this reminds me of briefly? Briefly, this reminds me of, um, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Fuck, what's his name? Give me one minute. I'm going to pause real quick. I'm going to pause real quick. 
Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Okay. When he was around, he wrote a lot of satirical satirical short stories where basically he would challenge maybe the ideals of the law or politicians or law-abiding citizens or whatever. He would challenge it by escalating things to a point where it was basically like, dude, how does it get to this point? It's so ridiculous and to the point where it's funny. He'll escalate situations where it's like, how is this even legal? How is this possible? What? Like all these people who, who are like dedicated to the law, why are they behaving like this? In a sense that it's comical if you want to read anything by him that's kind of like satirical and you're like the heck like you can you you understand the point he's trying to make with this like political piece that he does but the one that i'm thinking about is cannibalism in the cars by him it's a short story where he basically is like you know these politicians turn this survival thing this point where it should be about survival because they get stuck in some train cars and they get snowed in and they have to wait and it's been like starting to get to like weeks that they're in there and they're starving um instead of like finding solutions pretty quickly they hold sort of like a congress meeting and they're like actively dying they're actively dying in congress and it's there's a lot of political statements that you can assume that this makes but i think this is the kind of satirical like idea that lemony snicket is trying to like represent with us basically about how bad things have to get in order for people to start noticing or people to be like are you kidding me you're still not doing anything and look where it is Sonny's in a cage in a tower that's like more than 30 feet high violet scales the tower because she can't depend on adults to save the child so she takes matters into her own hands hand makes a grappling hook and climbs up to the tower to try to save Sonny. you know and it's not until like <laughs> it's not until Count Olaf is like, I foiled your plan. And then Violet's like snaps back at him and says, I foiled your plan, you old man, whatever. So everyone's like, I caught you. No, I caught you. Everyone's down there in the arena, whatever. And then Klaus is down there and he's like, can someone please let my baby sister out of that cage now who's dangling from a tower? And that's when Poe is like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? Did you just say that your baby sister is in a cage above a tower? And Klaus is like, yes, we need to get her down right now. Now that we finally did all this work and proved all this work to you, now maybe you'll actually see that he's like crazy and he's been keeping my sister in a cage. And also all of his henchmen have told me that they're gonna kill me. Bye, you know, like it's just all this information where he's like, oh, you never told me that. Are you kidding me? What, what's going on? Blah, 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 whatever. And it's just like, yeah, this has been happening, Mr. Poe. This has been happening. We tried to tell you in a civil way. We were trying to be polite. We just want you to take us seriously and take us out of this home. But here you are at a play while our sister is dangling over a tower and Count Olaf is trying to steal the fortune. He's going to kill Klaus right afterwards or is threatening to kill Klaus and Sonny right afterwards and to keep Violet as his 14-year-old mistress or 14-year-old wife or whatever the heck that he keeps bragging about. And <laughs> I mean, whatever. If it took all of that to prove to adults, that's I feel, I feel like that's the relevancy that comes in with Mark Twain being like, like, what point does it have to get to for you guys to see that things are happening, basically? That something is happening. <sighs> Sorry, I got really heated. Okay, the, free, the, few, the few corrections I want to make real quick. Sorry, I keep stuttering, but the few corrections I want to make is that I remember at the beginning when I mentioned the prequel, four book prequel series for Lemony Snicket, um, I said I wasn't sure if it's in the same universe as the Baudelaire children. Obviously, I realize now 
while I'm slowly thinking about things instead of just rambling on, that I said it's a prequel. It's a prequel book series, so obviously it is in the same universe. Um, I guess I only said that because there are a few books where Lemony Snicket is the character, but I don't think it has any relevancy at all to the entire story of the Baudelaire children. Um, even this, I'm not too sure if the prequel is directly about the Baudelaire children, and more so I think it's about that soap opera about what the parents are involved in and what Count Olaf and how he came in the picture and Lemony Snicket. And I've already kind of snooped at what Lemony Snicket's backstory is and I'm already emo about it, but I do want to save it until Lemony Snicket himself kind of brings it up or hints at it because I definitely do not remember this. And now looking back at it, I'm excited to finish this series and to read it and actually pay attention to what the adults are doing. I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, but when I was reading the book series as a child, I really only cared about the plot line that was happening. I didn't really care about subplots. I didn't care to put pieces together. Um, truthfully, even when Lemony Snicket was trying to say something like, oh, like my love for Beatrice or blah, blah, blah. I don't remember if I got too invested in it or if I was like, oh, Beatrice and like kind of did some light researching. But even then, I don't know if I paid attention too much about what the soap opera is and maybe that's the main confusion I had towards the end if I remember the end the book called the end but I mean at least this time I'll be able to pay attention to what the parents story is I do want to read that prequel as well but what the parents story is and what the hell that they did in their life as these fancy rich people that screwed up the kid's life so so badly seriously it's it screws it up so much and i'm 100 certain it is all of their fault um i mean we can dive into that also about you know what it means to have unresolved conflict in adult lives and how that can place your children in worse situations ultimately so adults make sure you clean your shit up before you have some kids all right so I guess this concludes the ending of The Bad Beginning. We're just talking about themes. We can talk more about how the characters change and move and represent different things as the book carries on, the book series carries on. For the next episode, we will combine the second book and the third book, which is The Reptile Room and The Wide Window, um, with two, two different guardians. And I mean, we can assume that every single book here will be a different guardian. Like Lemony Snicket says, it does not get any better from here on out. Uh, things just get worse and worse and worse. So we'll just, we'll keep in mind what kind of ideas we think Lemony Snicket might be making. But I do think that he is doing a good job of trying to represent a child's mindset and speaking to children directly about how ridiculous situations can, can get and how not ridiculous it is to ask for help and how soon it is that these kids ask for help, and how it's not ridiculous to feel like you can't ask for help because people can't depend on you, and to learn critical thinking, and to not depend on the law all the time for your own morals, and to think up your own morals by yourself. So, I mean, I mean, we'll just, we'll talk more about that as they come on, and we'll talk more too about Violet, Klaus, and Sunny as they grow up, and what kind of people they turn into because of what kind of things they had to learn at such an early age. I think Lemony Snicket does a good job of representing a group of children who learn these lessons pretty early on about trusting and not trusting and 
critical thinking and learning out how to survive in spaces where people don't protect you all the time or people let you down continuously when they've promised to protect you, I guess. So we'll talk more about that as they come. I know that I've rambled on a lot for this entire episode. I hope the other episodes will be a bit shorter for you, but I just really wanted to focus on a few themes that I think Lemony Snicket is trying to talk about as a character. We won't, we obviously won't talk about him as much for these next couple of books, um, unless if he directly becomes involved. But I'm, I just wanted us to be on the same page about, I guess what I think, well, we can be on different pages. You can disagree with me if you'd like. These are all just opinions, but I think Lemony Snicket is doing a good job of being a guardian for the reader um, as they make their journey through a series of horrible, horrible things, of secondhand horrible things, of watching these kids go through things, you being a kid and wanting to help them, not being able to help them, is generally the idea that all these adults probably have as well, of wanting to help these kids and not being able to for whatever reason, or willingly just choosing to be ignorant about these things anyways. I don't know, we'll, we'll discover more, we'll read the prequels as well when we get to those, and figure out what kind of crazy ass shit that these parents went through that made their children go through all this horrible, horrible things for 13 books. And, um, you know, let's just, let's just keep this as a little reminder that if you're a parent, maybe try and clean up all of that bad, all of that bad juju, all that bad stuff, cleanse, burn some sage, cleanse, cleanse the energy before you have children, or at least let them know about the energy, um, as soon as possible. So thanks for listening. Sorry for all of the rambling. I know I have plenty of corrections to make and people are more than welcome to correct me on things if they feel so inclined. Um, I welcome those and I'm happy that you guys are reading with me and I'm excited. Not, I mean, you know, as excited as I can be to read the next book and figure out what more things Lemony Snicket is trying to represent for us and how these kids endure it. So Thanks for listening, and I'll see you for the reptile room and the wide window.